Hey everyone, welcome to the show. My name is Aram Arslanian and I am your host. Today we are talking to Mike Getter, legendary A&R man, a huge, huge part of the punk, metal, hardcore, and really underground music scene. This is a guy that has seen it all, done it all, and is still able to work in the industry and make a real difference. What we're going to talk to him about today is growth, adaptation, and how music can still change the world. This is one of the most interesting interviews I've ever done. So tuck in for another great episode of One Step Beyond. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. Today we have the legend, Mike Gitter, who I am so excited to have on the show today. It's such a cool experience that when you reach out to someone to bring them onto the show and you do all the work that leads up to it, you develop a friendship sometimes. And that's really what's happened here. And, you know, there's been so much conversation since we reached out to Mike and so much great connection that it feels like I'm sitting down with an old friend. So, this is going to be a great conversation today about growth, adaptation, and how music can change the world. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Rob, thank you so much. I am psyched to be here. Okay. So I talked a little bit in the intro about what you do and who you are, but really just absolutely scratched the surface. So what can you tell us about who you are and what you do? Okay. Well, so my name is Mike Gitter. Um, I'm a Massachusetts native, having grown up in Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is about probably about 20 minutes north of Boston. Um, I lived there and sort of got my, you know, started the, started the journey there. Moved to New York City um, in 1989. Lived in New York and New Jersey till 2009, 2010. And for the past decade, I've been a... Um, resident of Southern California in, you know, in the greater Los Angeles area. Um, so in terms of, in terms of what I do, I'm the vice president of a for Century Media Records, which is a metal and hard rock label um, owned by Sony. It's part of the Orchard in North America and a standalone company overseas. So I've had an incredible run as an A&R guy, um, more or less since 1993, working for Atlantic Records, Roadrunner Records, Razor and Tie, and Century Media, as well as having a history as a journalist, um, starting in my native Boston in the mid-80s to basically when I was living in New York to the early 90s, when I sort of got ushered into the record company side of the business. And I was writing for magazines like Thrasher, Rolling Stone, Rip. Kerrang! And a lot of magazines that have the word metal in the title, you know, being in Boston and sort of growing up under the umbrella of the, the you know, punk and hardcore scene, I was able to, I, I first uh, did a fanzine called, well, actually, at very first started the sort of like, get off the sidelines fanzine called Suburban Mucus, which, yeah. which if you, which if you, you know, take a look at, you're like, 
that is a junior high school kid, like literally getting off the bench and, and getting active. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was followed about a year later um, in 1983 with the first issue of Triple X Fanzine, which has been canonized and presented in book form um, under the title Triple X Fanzine 1983 to 1988, Hardcore and Punk in the 80s. Um, you know, surprise on that title, um, through bridge, through bridge nine records. And I guess, I guess probably bridge nine books as well. Mm. Um, but we'll get into that later. Yeah. I I love what you said there about suburban mucus being the, like, get off the sidelines, uh, that, cause like, I mean, so much of, um, this podcast and my approach as a business person has to do with growing up in the punk scene and that idea of getting off the sidelines, like, hey, it's, it's okay to be on the sidelines, it's fine, but so much of punk is about, like, getting involved, like, doing something, like, you know, either playing in a band, putting on shows, doing a zine, like, being a photographer, like, recording, any of that stuff. And I love that idea of, like, you got to do your first thing before you do your thing. So, like, you got to get off the sidelines before you can really get in the game. And it usually takes one or two projects to get in there like that. Oh, and, 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 you know, just by virtue of having the will to do that, you know, I, I think it, it shows you the opportunities that, you know, punk, you know, or, or just sort of, you know, the whole DIY mentality really granted to all of us. It, it gave us, it really gave us agency to, you know, reshape the world as we want to see it. Yeah, man. I love what you just said, reshape the world, because suburban mucus is getting off the sidelines triple x shaped the world like triple x like a lot of how i view um like my interactions with punk and hardcore and metal and all that stuff like i always had and i think a lot of people coming from the 80s 90s had a very broad palette that you played from because like punk rock metal all of it like all of it was fair game it's gotten a lot more segmented now but what i i really love about triple x is it was such a like broad coverage and it really represented like underground music in general rather and like including like stuff that could be like considered college rock it was really um i felt it was like a real music magazine and it really helped guide and develop what was going on so it went from being something like documenting to something kind of like helping create and that's uh, such a cool shift but before we go any further into triple x for people who don't know this term can you tell us what a and r means uh in regards to the industry you're in? A&R is a term that dates back to sort of the earlier days of the record industry when, you know, you had, like, for instance, the Brill Building, where, you know, people were, basically artists were paired with songwriters, hence artist and repertoire. Um, you know, and that's still part of the job, but for the, for, you know, for the most part, the way I would define it now is sort of find them, sign them, oversee the process of making the record. And that can take, you know, many, many different avenues. And then, you know, oversee the process of making the record and be cheerleader slash jack of all trades, master of none. And, you know, guy who has a close, hopefully has a close relationship with the artist. Mm. So I would imagine in your job, like not even imagine in reality, you need to have a clear foot in what's actually happening culturally within music, but also have a foot in the business world. 
I mean, I mean, I've been I've been very lucky, and you know, the two the two things have always existed sort of sympathetically with each other. You know, you have to, you have to make good decisions. You have to make good decisions about your signings. You have to understand you know the marketplace that you're trying to reach. You know, you have to understand like you have to you have to have something that is going to strike a you know is, is hopefully going to strike a chord you know with an audience in a way that they haven't quite heard before mm. and usually you know there have the songs have to be great and the vibe of the record has to be great and i mean i feel like the biggest challenge is really pulling together a record or a song or a body of work that really stands apart and stands above you know most of what's out there Working on any body of work is, is you know, the one, th the one thing I'll say about it is there's no two records that are alike. There's no two um, outcomes that are ever the same. And, you know, I, I think every, every time you dive, in, you dive into a record, you know, one of the best and most challenging things about it is, you know, you, you never have the same experience and you never have the same outcome. Um, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're diving into this microcosm of kind of the, you know, the spectrum of, of human emotions and ambitions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're really pulling together, you know, three to five people usually and combining, you know, every, every bit of ambition, artistry, ideal, you know, every, every sort of hope and dream that they've had for themselves and really fusing that in, into a, a final musical result. Mm. And they're all going to be different. And I think that's what, you know, they're all going to be different. And for, for me, that's one of the most fun things about this is you never have the same outcome twice. Mm. And, and you, you, you learn from every experience. All right, Mike. So, because our audience is made up of people who both come from like the punk and hardcore and metal scenes, but also from, you know, business people who may be music fans, but they might not know about all of your professional successes and the things that you've brought to the table. So if we're thinking about as an A&R person and in your role today, what are some of the bands and some of the records that would be more notable for people who aren't from our scene to check out or know about? Okay, so I'll, look, I'll preface that by saying, you know, I look at sort of every record that finishes up, 96% of the time as success in its own right. Because, you know, you, 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 you think about it and records are a perfect mix of like, there are these perfect storms of like lucky accidents, artistry, ego, ambition, and, and really pure will. You know, there, there are often these like microcosms of human behavior. No two are alike, no two experiences are alike, no collection of people are alike. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to keep learning with every, everyone that gets done. Mm. You know, I've probably worked on somewhere between 80 and 100 different records in one form or another, mm. or, you know, past like 27 years of doing this, which is insane. And there's a lot of them I'm, I'm really proud of. You know, from, from the very first record uh, I ever A&R'd and the very first band I ever signed, 
which was Jawbox, who's, you know, for your own special sweetheart, is just a monumental moment in post-everything. You know, all the way up to more recent records like, you know, Body Counts, Bloodlust, mm-hmm. you know, which I think, well, which packed the song, a few, some, actually some pretty like incendiary moments, um, particularly the song Black Hoodie, which recalled the Trayvon, you know, the Trayvon Martin shooting, as well as No Lives Matter, which I think is probably more relevant now. I mean, it was, it, it's, it's an incredibly relevant and incredibly explosive piece of music mm. and opinion. And to work with somebody as, you know, just a brain like Ice-T is, is, was, was pretty awe-inspiring. A very, a very easy person to work with and a very sort of generous, you know, a very generous creative soul, mm. which is why he is who he is. Um, but along the way, there's been records like Glassjaw's Everything You Ever Want to Know About Silence, which I think really, you know, kicked off almost a genre in its own right. Uh, Kill Switch Engage is a lot of just breathing and watching the career that that band has had, you know, as, as they went from being what I just thought was like a really killer combination of Carcass, the Cro-Mags, you know, Ebullition Hardcore, and, you know, seeing them develop as, and, and there were, you know, obviously there were some membership changes and, Howard Jones coming in as like this incredible vocal presence, but seeing that band grow from like the underground to a band that, you know, has had gold records and is still, you know, a relevant and important metal band. Oh yeah. You know, uh, records, you know, from the likes of Bad Religion, mm-hmm. who I got to work on, you know, I got to work on the Pivotal Stranger Than Fiction record, you know, more recently things like Three Teeth's uh, Meta War, which to me is, is picks up the mantle of um, industrial, you know, industrial rock and, and moves it forward. Uh, some stuff I'm working on now, um, Frozen Soul, who is a great, you know, young band from, from Dallas, Texas, who I think wrote a death metal masterpiece um, called Crypt of Ice, which is coming out early next year. Um, God, and, and, and there's, there's plenty of records that like, didn't attain that sort of notice, you know, Sam, I am's clumsy, which is just full of amazing songs, has this great sense of emotion to it. Um, bands like still, you know, still remains who I love their of love and lunacy record. Uh, God, I mean, there were so many other experiences. I mean, working with Craig Filth on a record that got nominated for a Grammy mm-hmm. with, uh, Nymphetamine was just unlikely and incredible. And I, let me see, what, what else? Um, Dragon Forces and Human Rampage. Um, I could really keep, I could keep going. Oh, of course, Opeth, Ghost Reveries. Um, how do you anor Opeth? Just get out of the way. You know, <laughs> like, like you're dealing with a creative giant like Michael Ackerfeld. Mm-hmm. It's going to mm-hmm. be okay. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, another creative giant that we got to mention, uh, Siv. Set your goals. Siv. Uh, can't forget Siv. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the de facto Gorilla Biscuits record. Uh, like, seriously, one of the most, I think, fully realized records I've ever heard. Uh, you know, like, Walter, we, we love you. You're a great guy, great person, genius, uh, true gentleman. 
and uh, love everyone in that band. And God, what a good record that is. Just fully realized. It's, and again, that just taps into that, like, they didn't think that record was going to be one of the only pure hardcore records to ever, like, be on a major label, let alone be successful on a major label. Yeah. They just I, did I, it. We could do a whole podcast on that record because I don't think people realize, like, I don't think, like, even people in the punk and hardcore scene realize, like, how successful that record was. And, like, I'd love to just sit down and talk about the backstory someday because what a record. I mean, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing cooler than, like, tuning in faction punk and there's Can't Wait One Minute More, you know, and it's like, that's the, that's Walter, you know, that's Walter, that's Siv, that's Arthur, that's Sammy, you know, mm -hmm. and, and. What's exciting is, you know, these people are still in our lives. Mm -hmm. And yes, we can agree. Walter is possibly the coolest man in rock and roll. Hands down. Hands down. Most effortlessly cool, incredible musician, gentle soul, good person, great, great musician. Like all the stuff. He's, he's all the stuff. I wish him all the success and, and ongoing happiness. All right, man. Um, anything else you want to add on this question? Hmm. I mean, I could keep rattling off records. You know, I could tell you about the making of the Misfits' Famous Monsters. Um, I could tell you about, you know, working with, with, with Il Nino on the, you know, Revolution record and sort of being in the middle of clashes between them and their, their producer at the time. Um, I can rave about, oh, I'm doing all that. Wait a second. I can rave about the Bewitcher record that I'm finishing up right now, which sounds like a cross between Iron Maiden and Turbo Negro with, you know, Cronus from Venom sort of in the judge's box. Mm -hmm. um, but I, could prob I should probably stop. <laughs> All right, man. That's, that's that, the beauty of having like a storied career, right? We can go on and on and on. And uh, I, you know, I'm here for all of it, but for the purpose of this uh, podcast, let's get back to our topic at hand. I grew up, as I said to you in, in one of our first conversations, I grew up seeing your name in all of these layouts for these records. And, you know, you kind of almost became uh, like a cartoonish figure in my head, just like when you see all these people whose names show up in records over and over and over and over and over again, you're like, oh, what's this person like? What's this, you know, what's this, this person like personality wise? And also, of course, I was familiar with Triple X. And then I, I knew about you professionally, so I was always like really interested in how you did this, how you went from being this guy who did this like zine that really became like a magazine mm -hmm. and then transitioned into this music career. I want to talk about that in a second, but what I really want to ask you is, you've been in the game a long time, man. So how have you survived as a musical professional? Like where does growth and adaptation play in your story of being able to keep working in this industry for so many years? You know, I mean, first and foremost, I love music. You know, I'm mm -hmm. still addicted to, you know, that, that moment the needle touches the record and something happens. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, you know, that's what it comes down to, you know, and some of it, you know, Hey, a lot of it's sheer will, a lot of it's, you know, like, how do we, for, for me, it was important to, you know, get out of my hometown, Marblehead, Massachusetts. It was a great place to grow up, but I didn't, I didn't want to stay there, you know, and I didn't know where I wanted to go. 
but I knew that there was, I knew that there was a bigger world out there. And, you know, music was always sort of a gateway for that. And, you know, some of it's, a lot of it's being at the right place at the right time, you know, moving to New York City in 1989, you know, meeting and, and just being at shows and seeing music and being part of that culture, you know, meeting people who would ultimately connect me with people like, you know, Jason Flom or Danny Goldberg at Atlantic, you know, just being social and gravitating to insanely creative and creatively insane uh, people, you know, <laughs> who are either in bands or worked in studios or in labels. You know, and, and still, you know, being captivated by the energy and lore of, of certainly punk and metal and hardcore, but also rock and roll, you know. And what's kind of amazing is that there's at least half of the people I met, you know, have some sort of through line to punk. You know, I don't know if it's like a hive mind or a tribal energy or something that we're all just sort of like imbued with. But it's never stopped being, you know, part of what's gotten me from point A to point B. Totally. Like 100%. But specifically, though, if we think about your career, I want to consider something that, that I believe is really important for the audience. The music industry is an industry that is paved with professional graves. So there's a lot of people who think they're going to be career musicians. There's a lot of people who think they're going to be producers and engineers or A&R people or involved in the music industry somehow who now own like, you know, a cute little bakery somewhere in like, you know, Maine or something like that. And that's fine. You know, things change, but it's tough to stay in the music industry. Really tough. So your career is really miraculous because not only have you been involved in like, you know, for 30 years, but you're also super highly regarded. You're not considered like irrelevant and you're also not in like some super like corporate C-suite where you're not somewhat attached to the front lines. So if we think of adaption and we think of growth, and let's split them up. Where are the areas that you've had to grow as a professional so that you can still be in the game? Let's start simply with growth. Where have you had to grow? You know, you, you just need to continually get better at what you do. You know, you always need to keep your mind open. You always need to keep listening. But you also have to learn from your own mistakes. You know, you, you need to walk away from a, di you know, from, from a difficult conversation with an artist and, you know, say to yourself, okay, how could I have done that better? Mm. You know, how could I have, have gotten the same result but done it, you know, in, in probably a less confrontational way? Um, and that's, you know, that's happened over the years. You know, you, you also have to kind of just keep your eyes out in terms of changes within, you know, music, you know, pay attention to, at one point, you know, at one point it was what's on the radio. Uh, you know, even, even if it didn't impact on what I was signing or what I was working with, you know, under, understand, the, you know, understand everything that was going on. You know, now it's extremely easy. You know, you look at you look at sort of key playlists on Spotify and you get a sense of what's happening, you know, in the mainstream world, in the rock world, um, you know, and, and in the underground. And just, you know, just pay attention and, and kind of, you know, to me, one of the best parts of this is I get to work with music. Hmm. And, you know, that's a privilege. You know, it's, it's something that you shouldn't 
you shouldn't be lazy about. You know, you, sh you should know the landscape and also, you know, understand that when you're dealing with, young, especially with younger artists, they're coming from a completely different place than you are. You know, their, their, their influences, their outlook, how they've, they've grown up on media, it's all fundamentally different than what, you know, you or I grew up on. Mm -hmm. So really it's a matter of like, you know, just understand change. Um, understand that, that, you know, if, if you do this correctly, you get to be a constant in a sea of cultural and artistic changes. Man, and that is super powerful what you just said, because, you know, something I, if we can reflect back to stepping outside of music, mm -hmm. a lot of people who are in senior roles of organizations, you know, like they are working in an organization and they, they're leading people who are 10 years, 15 years, 20 years younger than them. They're coming from a different, totally different mindset. And that really, I love what you said, understanding change and then becoming a constant in a sea of, of, you know, shifting things that I believe for leadership. So not just in terms of like what's going on in the creative space, but leadership in general, like really understanding change, like understanding how the world's changing, understanding the nature of change, but also really endeavoring to be like a constant in a world that can be going through all sorts of either minor or major upheavals. That to me is the part of the essence of leadership. So that's a really, really cool thing that you brought in there. I felt like you kind of hit both growth and uh, adaptation there, but is there anything else you want to add in on that piece? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like both as a journalist and particularly when I, when I moved to New York City, you know, you would always see these, these people who were those guys. You know, they were, they were always like those guys, these kind of shadowy, besuited figures who you never quite understood what they did, but it was always sort of, it was intriguing. But at the same time, you also couldn't relate. Hmm. And, you know, the ones who came, sort of came down from Mount Olympus and, and, you know, were really part of the community, you know, people like, you know, I'm still good friends with Michael Alago, who to me is a enormously influential, like absolutely non-mainstream personality who has fundamentally changed the mainstream. The ones, you know, the ones who, who knew how to speak the language and were never, you know, beyond reproach. Were always always the key personalities for me. Mm. You know, it's interesting. Like, like, what was my first? You know, I think one thing we've talked about before is like, what was my first music industry job? Mm. Well, it was, um, and I think I probably had met this guy at um, a local record store. Um, it was working for a guy named Don Rose, and. Don Rose is largely known as the founder of Ryko Disc Records. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, is largely known as one of the fundamental, like, people who brought the compact disc into America. Mm. But at the time, you know, he was, at the time, which was probably about 1982, somewhere around the time I was doing the Suburban Mucus fanzine, uh -huh. he was doing a, re a record label called Eat Records which had some local success with like local bands like, you know, Human Sexual Response or Rubber Rodeo, um, kind of left of center, you know, I guess you would call them new wave band, you know, post-punk or new wave bands. And Don, you know, took a shine to me and saw that I had some, you know, 
energy and some moxie. Mm-hmm. And um, probably gave me my first job, you know, stapling together press kits and, you know, putting together mailings. And, you know, to, to me, that's an example of like how to, you know, just how to behave, how to, you know, further, further other people's ambition and energy and, you know, just create like a, you know, cause, cause you, you, you never, you never know who you help out today or who say your intern, you know, your intern is today may be your colleague tomorrow. Yeah. Or your competition. That happens too. Yeah. All right. So this leads me to a question that I think is, is pivotal. Um, we think about change and artistic change, you know, like really, uh, we think of like, sometimes I think like all of like the significant changes culturally that have happened from like art or music as in these like historic things that happened. And there's like nothing that could happen now. You know, for example, like I think of the bad brains and how they changed the idea of like what the, the ethnic or cultural makeup of like a punk scene could be where it's like, you've got these like four black men who are like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to be in a punk band and we're going to take our own space. We're not asking for permission. This is what we're doing. And, and in fact, we're going to inject some reggae in there, like huge change, huge cultural change. Or if we think of like Cro-Mags, like taking like metal and infusing it with punk, like what the hell? That's crazy they did that. Or if you think of Minor Threat, starting straight edge, like just calling something straight edge and putting that flag up and how that's changed the world. Or Youth of Today, like creating like this really consciousness around vegetarianism. These are these little bands, these teeny, teeny, teeny little bands, regional bands that suddenly have changed the world, literally changed the world. Then you think of big things like the Beatles or you think of Rage Against the Machine and all this stuff. But from your perspective, can music still change the world? Yes. Yes. Um, Because it's still a cultural force, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's still it's still cultural currency and it's it's more available now. Really, you know, since we since the world has moved, you know, from an ownership model to a subscription model. Mm-hmm. We have access to everything. Mm-hmm. Granted, there, there's more static to cut through, mm-hmm. but you know there's there's still a lot of room for great music. You know, there's still a lot of room for important ideas, and there will always be some. You know, there will always be somebody who wants to get up and get out, and you know, cliche as it sounds, kick out the jams, motherfuckers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, music still has the cultural currency, you know, to, to be an agent of change, you know, mm-hmm. you know, to, to grab people in the same way that when I first heard, you know, the bad brains or first heard SSD control or first heard the clash, mm-hmm. you know, that, that power and that, that promise is still there. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at, you know, Childish Gambino's, this is America, mm-hmm. you know, or even much closer to our, you know, to our frame of reference, somebody like, you know, Bob Mould's American Crisis from his, you know, Blue Hearts record, which is one of my favorite records this year. You know, music can still articulate that cry for help, that, that cultural rage, that seeking affirmation or solace. And it's absolutely still got, still got the ability to change the world. Hmm. There's more of it. And like I said, there's more static to cut through, 
but also it, it's it's all right in front of you. You know, when we launched fanzines, which you know I'm I'm happy to say I still see printed fanzines, and there's there's nothing sort of more like affirming you know affirming that like okay this is still like a valid tactile thing in our lives, but it's all available. It's all right in front of us. And there's a lot more room for just information and for discussion. So you brought up something I really want to hit on and it's, this is a tougher question. So when you talk about the idea from moving from an ownership model to a subscription model, so ownership kind of traditionally being like we'd own a record, like vinyl record or a CD or a tape, you know, we own something. Now to a subscription model where we're subscribing to services like, you know, like iTunes or Spotify, and we've got access to all of these artists. Now, here's where I'm interested in the idea of change. And is, it, is can music still create that is we have access to so much more stuff, like so, so much more stuff. So how can those like really culturally important bands bubble to the surface? Now, do they just bubble to the surface because basically like if you write an awesome record, no matter what, it's going to pop up or does there need to be more cultivation and support? Like, can that still happen like in an organic way or do we actually have to make it happen? I mean, I think it can. I think, you know, hopefully it can. Um, I think, you know, great music, great songs, strong viewpoints, you know, certainly magnetic personalities all contribute to that. So I think, you know, I, I, I think it's really the combination of, you know, art marketing and, you know, just having, having something to say either, you know, musically or um, ideologically. So is there an amount of success that a band could have that compromises their ability to put out a record that challenges the norms? No. Because we've we've seen seismic change in our lifetimes, we've seen art be responsible for seismic change. You know, even even from a massive you know from the massive cultural shift of of saying never mind in 1991. Mm -hmm. You know, basically, culture, thought, discourse, all change as a result as a result you know of that watershed moment. I mean, there was a lot leading up to it, but that was the tipping point. So, so yes, um, you know, we've we've had bands like Rage Against the Machine, you know, mm-hmm. who have been have been politically and culturally outspoken, mm-hmm. and in their you know their active time releasing records, um, you know, brought awareness to like many different causes mm-hmm. in a very sort of significant and mainstream way. Um, but I got to push on this point right now. Cause like, I, I, I can say as being a guy who at one point in my life was, I guess you could in a very broad way, call me a professional musician. I was living off of music. Mm-hmm. I, and there were some peers of mine that were also living off music at the time. You could see that tension between being like, well, I'm no longer someone who just, you know, I'm working a job and I do this as a hobby. It's become my career. It's how become how I live. And you can see people's records get worse as an example of that. So I'm not talking about the Rage Against the Machines or the, the Nirvanas or the bands that are like sell millions of records. Now we're talking about like people who maybe sell tens of thousands of records, for maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe tens of thousands, and maybe 
thousands. Is there a point where like the financial incentives of trying to make a living off your art threaten your ability to do something that pushes, and I'm not even saying politics, but just is like that pushes things that where you allow yourself to push yourself as a musician, as a creative force or an artist or politically. I mean, I think it depends what, what's your motivation to begin with. You know, what's your, what's your come from and how resolute are you, you know, about what you've got to say, be it musically or lyrically. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't, it doesn't have to become diluted. In fact, mm-hmm. I think, you know, if, if we, and we have plenty of examples of, of bands that we see all around us, you know, everything from Nine Inch Nails to Fever 333 to artists, you know, like Chelsea Wolfe. Or, you know, or Napalm Death, who all, whose, whose strength, I think, in many ways is, is in, in that sort of, st- you know, basically sticking to their guns, you know, mm. follow, following their North Stars. You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I, I watch a band like, say, Rise Against, you know, who come from the punk and hardcore scene, mm-hmm. who have had, you know, intense, you know, who've had a real degree of commercial success. And... Knowing those guys and, and hearing, hearing record after record, their motivations and, and, and their goals haven't changed. They've mm-hmm. become better songwriters. Um, you know, so sometimes a record's, you know, sometimes a record or a song is absolutely like transcendent, mm-hmm. you know, but it, they've also maintained a career over a number of years. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think anybody looks at, at them or any number of artists, and says, you know, oh, you've, you've, you've really let it sort of go. Okay. So this is, uh, this is I want to lead it back to your career. Um, you know, one of the things about punk, and I've, I've been talking about this a lot lately, like I love punk, and I love hardcore, and it, I mean, I, would not, I wouldn't even be a shadow of the person I am today without it, in good ways and in challenging ways. One of the things about punk and hardcore is that I find it to be overtly rulesy in terms of what's what's cool and what's not cool you know like what's cringy and what's not cringy and like it's interesting because you can see people who just break out of that and just being like whatever mm-hmm. and it's like their success is what makes what they do cool like henry rollins is, henry like, rollins is a perfect example yeah. yeah perfect example his his stuff is so undeniably cool but if he was if he wasn't successful then he'd be like the cringy weird dude that like hung around that was doing like spoken words at like you know punk shows there was 30 people at so it's like, it's an interesting thing. It's like this weird overt rulesiness of punk and hardcore can o- operate like a real prison for people's creativity and what they're daring and willing to do. So I'm real interested in you specifically because you went from running this killer DIY zine that you did that got more and more popular, became more of a cultural icon, and then you shifted into music. So did you ever encounter any kind of backlash? Like, oh, he's like, you no, know, now he's gone to the other side of the fence. He's working for the majors. He's like, you know, that guy. Sure. I mean, I mean, there's the infamous, um, the problem with music article by Steve Albini, uh-huh. where, it, you know, I get, and, 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 I, and I think um, Albini's point is actually, is actually pretty well spoken and his, his numbers are correct. And his, you know, his point of view in terms of like, what it was at that point, you know, in the early nineties for once independent bands to sign to bigger, bigger labels and, and have to deal with, you know, 
the pressures of expectation, of budgets, um, of, you know, becoming that quote unquote next Nirvana. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he lumped me in with a, with a number of other people who came from, came from a DIY background, who also started working for um, record labels. And it was people like, you know, Terry Tolkien, who was in the Buffalo Surfers, or Lyle Preslar, who ran Caroline Records for a while, and got Al Smith, who worked at CBGB's for quite a while. And that was, that's a pretty good company to be counted in. So, again, it, it, go, it goes to throwing out that. Oh, and also, um, there was a cover of Maximum Rock and Roll, circa about 93, 94, around the time that um, I had begun working with Bad Religion or um, Sam I Am, who, you know, I was lucky enough to make a couple of, like, really great records with. And it was, the issue was subtitled Maximum Greed and Ego. Oh. And... You know, but at the same time, like, if, if, if you're to be judged against the company you keep, then most of, most of the figures that they were, you know, pointing out, be it labels like Epitaph or Fat or, I guess, you know, personalities like Rollins, mm-hmm. um, you know, carried a bucket load of credibility and earnesty into the room. And I'm, I'm okay with being one of those guys. You know, it's interesting. It's like, I can think of a lot of great bands, be they successful or not, mm-hmm. who stuck to their guns and kept pushing, you know, pushing boundaries. And some of them, because of that, have maintained careers, you know, till today. I mean, my friends in Corrosion of Conformity mm-hmm. are a great example of that. You know, mm-hmm. at one point they said, we never totally fit in, so let's keep pushing. Mm-hmm. Let's keep, you know, let's keep moving forward. And there's still a band called Corrosion of Conformity that involves at least two of the people that were on the Eye for an Eye record mm-hmm. making records and when you can tour, touring today. Mm-hmm. But, and it's, you know, and it's funny. It's like, it's like, sure, you know, bands will have missteps, but some of those, some of those missteps are some of their most intriguing moments. Mm-hmm. You know, um, people always point to say, you know, bad religions into the unknown well what could be more punk than a bunch of 17 year olds trying to write a kansas record and trying to step (laughs) way beyond you know trying to like step way beyond their their punching weight yeah man well you know as he said that patrick's on the other side of the computer and he got a big smile and started nodding his head as soon as he said uh, into the unknown like yeah, it's interesting to me, and like I don't complain about it at all. I actually kind of like I love the idea that punk is punk and hardcore is so like um, we care about it. We care about the culture and all those things. And what I'd say to people is like it's like you know when I think about this, I think it's this kind of one of the big differences between someone who's on a normal career path versus someone who's like a punk coming out of that scene is uh, is that like. The idea of growth and change in most careers is good, you know, like really changing who you are, getting, you know, trying new things, growing. But punk and hardcore has this real guardianship of like staying the same, being who you are or being that person. And I'm not against that. Like, it's whatever. But people who come from that scene who are trying to do something more with what they learned from punk and hardcore, I find them intriguing. And I really love when people can just really comfortably like throw off those norms and be like, no, 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 I'm still punk. Like, I'm totally still punk. I'm just applying 
what I learned and who I am in a different place, in a different way. It really brings this idea, and you know, it's the thing that we won't name the person, but I'll, I'll, I'll just say like that thing I talked to you about when that person's like, this isn't punk. And Patrick is kind of laughing on the other end. It's like, dude, who are you at like, you know, 50 year old to tell anyone what punk is like punk is defined by the 16 year old, by the 17 year old, by the 20 year old. I know what punk is for me at 46 and punk is for me. Punk and hardcore is about applying that worldview in new places and trying to like adapt and learn and grow so that I can like take what I've learned and help it and use it to make a difference in whatever environment I'm in. And I feel that your career has really been a great example of that. So. Anything to add to that before I go into my next question? Yeah, I mean, you know, so what's punk in 2020? Um, it's, it's a culture that's been, you know, permeated by just DIY thinking and ambitions that, you know, like in a weird butterfly effect way, start off as a pebble thrown in the, uh, in the pond. And it's mm. now, you know, it's Ben O'Rourke, it's Shepard Ferry, it's Brett Gerwitz. You know, it's it's vegan options being available on flights. Mm. It's certain aspects of te creative team building. Mm. You know, like DYS said, you know, we haven't changed the world, but we made a fucking start. Well, mm. I think in a lot of ways that just, you know, that disruptive nature of, and I, and I hate to marginalize it just to say punk, uh, but just that, that disruptive cultural nature you know has changed the world for the better yeah man and so like what was the point where you went from being like uh yeah i'm part of the secret little culture and this is the thing i do and then you know i work these jobs when did it dawn on you where you're like oh no i could do this as a career i could be involved in music either as a journalist or or something else what was that tipping point for you i mean i mean it was probably in the transition from you know merely being a guy with a fanzine to at first, you know, when I, when I started writing for Thrasher, that was, you know, being asked by Pusshead, who I just, who I knew, you know, it was, it was Puss. He was like, you know, aside from being like a great and legendary artist, um, he was legitimately just part of, part of our world and a friend and in septic death and a guy I traded records with. So he was, he was music editor of, of Thrasher and he said, Hey, you know, you, you can kind of write, you know, do you want, do you want to jump on and maybe write something about the Chromax or Youth of Today or Dag Nasty? You know, bands that you like are close to and just, you know, naturally love. That was followed by getting a call from a guy named Danny Fields to write a piece on Black Flag, a subject I, you know, a band I knew pretty well for a magazine he was editing at the time called Hard Rock Video. Hmm. Well, you know, since, since, I, since I wasn't fully immersed in, you know, all the history of, of, of music, I shortly there, I didn't realize it, you know, after, when he called me, but shortly thereafter, I'm like, oh, that's the guy that managed the Ramones. You know, that's the Danny Fields that signed the Stooges and the MC5 to Elector Records, you know? All of a sudden, I'm, I'm getting, you know, I'm, so, I'm suddenly getting like, all their recognition and going like, oh, wait a second, and I get paid for this? And that really gave me agency, you know, if nothing else, to go and pursue other writing gigs while still sort of in the last couple of years of XXX. Mm -hmm. 
and I think at that point, you know, start, starting to get a trickle of, of money in from things I just loved doing, which at the time was just writing, I realized, like, okay, there's, there, there's, there's, there's some potentialities here. Um, man, it's just such a cool story, and I could talk to you forever about it, but I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Triple X. And before we get to that, I always, I always laugh when I'm doing a show with, like, one of my people, right, where it's like, you know, for business people, they're going to hear us talk about characters like Pusshead. And they're like, what is a Pusshead? So Pusshead is like this iconic, legendary artist from our world. But he, he is expansive. He goes well beyond punk and hardcore. He's just an incredible artist. Well, he's, that's, another, that's another example of somebody who like, you know, who wasn't content just to sort of live, live in that paradigm. Yeah, he created his own world. Right. Uh, like 100%, just unbelievable guy. Hope to have him on the show someday. All right, let's talk about Triple X, man, because mm-hmm. I have set the stage for Triple X as being like, listen, one of the iconic, most important fanzines became like a real magazine, like real, real deal, like going from a small print run to a much bigger print run. So what led to the decision of heading this like successful magazine to letting it go? What, what happened that, you, that caused that transition? I mean, at that point... Music was changing. Um, my life was changing. You know, what, what we considered sort of hardcore or what Triple X was associated with was, was really becoming something else. And I think there were, other, there were other zines doing a much better job of covering it. You know, I think, I think obviously like something like Forced Exposure, which was very much predecessor of Triple X, carried that ball, you know, and, and, you know, documented really the explosion of like, in, I guess what we call indie rock now, you know, and bands like Swans and Sonic Youth, which was just another, you know, another sort of limb off, off the punk tree anyway, Mm. you know, and, 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 and there weren't as, it it, was, the music at that point was changing. Mm -hmm. I was also writing about music for a number of other magazines at that point. So it became less, you know, Triple X wasn't my only outlet at that point. And, you know, I dabbled in playing music around that point, which was a, another sort of, we can talk about that. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it was sort of another avenue for me, I think, albeit, I think, unsuccessfully. Um, <laughs> And, and, and by the way, never, never, you know, never with a professional sort of mindset on that. So it was kind of time just to kind of wind it down, you know, and, and, and the one thing I'm, you know, if, if you look at like what frames triple X, it's, it's minor threat to Fugazi. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, I think, I think we were a great second generation hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. I think we documented a lot of music in motion. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, we, there, there were a number of changes that happened um, over the course of the six years I did it. And, you know, and that was everything from the birth, you know, really the birth of post-hardcore, Revolution Summer, you know, proto-emo, uh, crossover, youth crew, metal, speed metal you know, all the variations of metal. And, you know, that wasn't, that at that point for me, that wasn't triple X anymore. Mm. So, you know, it was, I, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm 
pleased to say we sort of left, you know, we left a good looking corpse. All right. And, you know, the one thing I kind of, I wrapped it up after about 20 issues. The only thing, the only regret I have, and God, I wish I could find this cassette somewhere, is that there was an inter- there was a final interview done for what would have been the 21st issue. And it was a conversation between Al Burrell from SSD Control and Ian Mackay at the first Boston Fugazi show. And it was great because, because, you know, you've got these two old friends at that point coming from like completely different points of view. And yet they're, they're not dissimilar personalities or intellects. Mm. And, you know, I wish, I wish that that, um, I wish I could find that cassette. I wish you could find it too, man. All right, let's let's hit the let's hit the last the last couple of questions here. Um, so, someone who we have to thank for also connecting us and and uh, you know putting out the Triple X collection is Chris Wren from Bridge Nine. So, thank you, Chris. Shout thank out, thank you, Chris Wren. Love you, dude. You're a great guy. All right. So, man, you put out this Triple X collection, and I know it was a long time in the making, mm-hmm. but Mike Gitter today, looking back on Mike Gitter back then, you know how was that for you? Well, first, first off, you know, I, again, many thanks to Chris Wren, um, mm-hmm. who did a lot of the heavy lifting, you know, not only just financing the book and releasing the book through Bridge Nine, but he also did all the layouts on it. You know, mm-hmm. he put up with, you know, he put up with me for like a period of three or four years as we went and, you know, hunted down additional interviews, additional pictures. And without Chris Wren, I don't think the book would be as good as good as it is now. Mm. And, you know, so, so many thanks to him. Mm. Um, you know, looking at, looking back on it, I, th- I think the book in many ways was a means for me, probably very unconsciously of, of claiming my space. Mm. Um, of going back to, you know, just a period of complete naivete, mm-hmm. you know, and complete, like, first impulses, fearlessness, being, being in love with music, being in love with possibility, and being, you know, motivated by nothing other than wanting to put out a kick-ass fanzine, mm. you know, wanting to write about music that I felt was, you know, essential, uh, important. And, you know, I can, I can, I can look at it now and, you know, there's, there's, there's some winsome moments, you know, some of those, <laughs> some of the early issues, um, some of the early issues are, you know, they're primitive and sloppily laid out. But there's a there's a rawness that I think is is still there's a rawness that's that's charming that grew into something that was a lot you know uh, it just it grew it grew it grew into something that I think was you know as competitive as any of the zines that I you know basically were influenced by or you know ripped off mm-hmm. you know those being like you know. Forced Exposure, which came before me. Flipside, which came before me. DC's Thrill Seeker, Maximum Rock and Roll, 
um, leading edge from San Diego. You know, like I like I was I was kind of a you know it was kind of a contender at that point, and I'm still you know I'm still proud of it in that regard. Um, I think the process of doing the book, you know, like like I said, it was very affirming to me about where I've been and the through lines of my you know through lines through my career now that date back to you know my my earliest ambitions you know being a kid um being a kid with a fan you know staple together fanzine and people actually like buying it not just locally but in other cities but i will say one of the, one of the funniest or one of the um most who the thunk it moments uh going back to the release of the first issue i think it was on june 6th 1983, which was basically Triple X's birthday. It was the first time I had the first issue of it at a um, Dead Kennedy show in Waltham, Massachusetts. And I didn't know it at the time, but I met a young guy who was from, you know, Waltham as well, who bought an issue of it, and I believe still has a copy of it. And I would, I would meet him again three or four years later when his band White Zombie you know, took out an ad for their, um, I think it was their, for the, no, it was a Psychohead blowout record. Um, you know, and it's just, it's, it's funny. It just, it just shows you, an, it's just another great example of like someone who came from that background who became part of not just, you know, underground culture, but mainstream culture. 100%, man. I, again, like someone who, Someone who took what he learned in one world and was fearless enough to take it somewhere else and uh, and make waves with it. All right, so three final questions. This is it, and then whatever you want to close off with. All right. First question. Was SSD as good live as legend says? When when they were when they were on and they were crushing it. There was nobody who could touch them. There was nobody who was heavier. There was nobody who had more of a charged message. Um, they were the sound of our town. They were the band. They were the band that organized everything. Al Barrill was, you know, the guy who gave us help and gave us direction, and deserves every bit of credit he gets for really creating, you know, creating a scene in Boston. So, you know, again. When you say SSD and you, you say anybody who grew up in Boston around that point, SSD was everything. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, you can feel the repercussions of that. Okay. Question number two, what's the most underrated seven seconds record? I would say it's a tie. Um, I would say, I would say the committed for life EP, mm. which is, to, you know, cause it's, it's, it's sort of the stopover between Skins, Brains, and Guts, and, and all the material prior to that, mm -hmm. like three demos, um, where, you know, you heard the, which were primarily like influenced by like, you know, Sham 69, DOA, a lot of English punk, um, and the crew. And for the most part, most of those songs don't appear on the crew. I think This Is Angry is the only, this is angry is the only one that sort of gets reprised. But that's that's the, the the moment where I think they became a lot more infused with with East Coast, particularly DC influences, and really became the seven seconds that that we 
knew them and now know them as today. Mm-hmm. You know, I also th- look. I also think the Praise EP, which probably hasn't been in print in quite a long time. So, Kevin, please, please get it back out there. Um, those those were songs that picked up, you know, after New Wind, which which saw them, which which to me New Wind is still very much very much of a classic Seven Seconds record. Mm-hmm. It's a little more melodic, but I think the message, you know, the message and, and sort of the, the trappings of, of classic Seven Seconds are still there. Mm-hmm. Praise is the moment where they, where they where they step out of the box, and you you still very much feel they step out of the box and and you feel that liberation mm-hmm. from you know from their past, but they're also stepping out of it. And following their own, you know, their own ambitions and inclinations and muses, mm-hmm. and they became a band for the next, you know, for the next couple couple of decades, really. Well, um, Kev, Steve, Troy, Bobby, love you guys. You're best. Uh, great band, start to finish. Uh, never put out a bad record, in my opinion. All right. I agree. I agree with that totally. All right. Last question: What's one band that you feel just never got their due and it could be a band that got big but they didn't get big enough or they didn't get they don't get enough respect and retrospect but what's been one band that you can be like you know what they really just never got their due well there's there's two boston see i i always, I always you know you say one i'll take two you know on one hand siege was was one of the for a long time sort of one of the great underappreciated massachusetts bands I mean, eventually that demo sort of was was dubbed and copied, and tenth generation copies of it got to people in you know Japan and the UK and all around the world, and Power Violence was born. Mm-hmm. So you know, and, and that's a re- that's a record that I, I can listen to today. It still sounds immense. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I understand, it was a one night live recording. Um, you just think, think of like the, the blinding intensity in the room at the time, like what was going on, mm-hmm. the happy, you know, the happy accidents and the, um, just everything, you know, just, just the, the sheer intensity of those, those four people and Lou Giordano capture, capturing it like flawlessly mm-hmm. offhand. I think one man that didn't get enough credit due and still doesn't was Jerry's kids, mm. you know? As as much as SSD was was the, the sound of the city, and you know DYS and negative effects were sort of like the Boston flag wavers. Jerry's kids were, in some ways, much more musical. Hmm. Much you know they they had a personal intensity about them that makes me think of them as sort of they were they were Boston's black flag. Hmm. They're just, they're incredibly disciplined. You know, they practice literally every day. You know, you, you, you listen to some of, some of Bob Sensi's, you know, guitar performances and they're like, what's that? Or, um, Brian Betzker just, just sort of doing like these insane fills throughout every song that make like perfect sense and no sense in the same, in the same breath. Hmm. And Rick Jones, like leaving it all, you know, on stage or on record um and i think you know it was funny that was that was one of the, one of that was probably the band that like over the course of working on the triple x book sort of became the, the band of the book hmm. um 
you know, a little un- a little unsung and you know, just just so ripe for rediscovery. Um I was very lucky, you know, when we did a New York release uh show for for the Triple X book, I was, you know, honored to have them headline it. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, I'm, I'm, it, it was still one of the high points of that experience. And actually, now I'm thinking about it, going back and, you know, thinking about the Boston release for the, for the book as well, we had, Kevin, we had Kevin Seconds doing an acoustic set along with the proletariat. Mm. And, and to me, that summed up the XXX experience, which was both local and, and, and Bostonian, mm-hmm. but wasn't, we weren't restricted to that. And hopefully, you know, that, that sense of like communication and outreach that about like seven seconds had and that, you know, intense political sort of, you know, thing about the proletariat, we, we, we encompassed that night. All right. So uh, this has been an incredible conversation, Mike. I loved every single second of it. Uh, as we're wrapping up. Anything that you want to add in about growth, adaptation, and how music can change the world? I mean, you know, like, like I think I've said a few times, you know, stay true to your personal North Stars. You know, never, never lose that sense of like, this is rad. Mm. That, that you had when you first discovered, you know, when you first fell in love with be it punk, hardcore, rock and roll, you know, DIY culture. But also, don't be don't be afraid to put it in front of as many you know as many people as you can. You know, don't get, don't be afraid to be an agent for change. You know, to to bring up the name of your fine band. <laughs> but yeah, you know, don't be afraid to fuck up the world because hmm. sometimes it needs it, and every kid has a voice, and we should use them. Heck yeah. All right. Well, Mike, uh, this has been an incredible conversation. Uh, you know, there's so much I've taken away from it. I had so many aha moments. And for people who uh, are listening who aren't from the punk and hardcore world, I want you to think about that, that staying true to your North Star. Why did you get involved in the business that you're in right now? What are you doing that you're passionate about and are you staying true to it today? One person who really believes in something can change the world for good. And if they really believe in something and they stay silent, they can let that world change for bad. This is the moment where I encourage everybody. We're in un- uncertain times, wild, wild, wild waters. This is the time. If you believe in something, you got to push for it. You got to stay true to yourself. You got to stay true to others. You got to stay true to the world. With that, everybody, I will see you in the outro. Thank you so much, Mike. And Dave, drop the beat. Yeah, Mike Gitter, you absolutely delivered on that one, my friend. You know, when I think about being a business person and I think about being you know, a creative, like someone who plays in bands, you got to be able to grow. And growth isn't just by sitting in the same space and seeing the same things. It's by holding up a mirror to yourself. It's by getting feedback. It's by trying new things and then adapting to the challenges. Now, we can't shy away from the pain points. we got to push through them because that's what makes us stronger and better. And I'm just going to say at the end of the day, we are living in wild times right now. And I am more convinced than ever, especially after that conversation with Mike, that music can, does, and will change the world. So 
I believe you're with me on this and everyone out there, stay safe, stay hopeful and help make the right changes happen in this world. That's it. And we'll see you next time on One Step Beyond. One Step Beyond.